morning going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, if you want to um, open your Bibles there. I, I've got to confess to you, uh, you know, no, I, I think for a lot of us, some of you all will identify with this, we, there's a point, even as, as the years go by, that we always have that part of that kid in us. At least I hope so. There's a part, I hope I never lose that. But, you know, there's that part that just kind of takes you back to being six or seven or eight or nine. And, and I share that with you because they rearranged slightly up here this morning. So they put the congas here, which, you know, normally they're over there. And it's taken every ounce of self-containment I've had, every time I've walked by these things, not to start beating on them. You know, you just feel those moments when you just want to hit something and they're right there. And um, if I was to start playing them, you would instantly know that my son does not get his talent from me because, um, but they've been there and they've been tempting me all morning. And it's funny because, you know, I do after church, if, if you hang around, you'll notice that we'll have some of the kids will start coming back in and your parents will bring them back in. And that's what they do. They beeline for the drums and the things. There's just something that attracts us. You know, even if it's, you don't have any rhythm, you still want to kind of make a noise. And uh, so I've been resisting that temptation this morning. Uh, John chapter 6, our text uh, for our time together this morning. And it is some words, some teachings of Jesus that really build on some previous events in the gospel. Most specifically at the beginning of John chapter 6 is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 the loaves and the fish, and, and many of you are familiar with that. But if you're not, Jesus, who takes a few loaves and a few fish and feeds the masses. And there have been other miracle stories that have happened up in, prior to this in the Gospel of John. But this is a moment where, where Jesus is really focusing on his teachings and on his words and says some very challenging things to those who are with him and to us even today. And so we begin at, at that sixth chapter. I'm going to back up a few verses and actually begin at verse 53. And this is what we read. It says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would know and believe. As we hear these words proclaimed, your words of inspired Scripture, these words that I speak, I pray, also inspired by your Holy Spirit, that would draw us close to you and close to Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Phlogiston. Anybody ever heard of that term, phlogiston? Phlogiston was proposed to be the essence of fire. In 1667, Johann Beeker, a German alchemist, proposed that phlogiston was what was the heart of fire, what was the combustible agent of fire, what was burned off in fire. It was, it was that substance which made fire possible. The reason that you've never heard of it is because he was wrong. While it was a popular theory, while it was a popular understanding for a while, science advanced. And science came on to know that it's really oxidation and oxygen that makes fire possible. And the process was understood more completely. And phlogiston became a, um, a substance of, of no value. It, the, the, it was bunk. It was proven to, to be wrong. History is full of substance, full of theory, full of proposition, full of speculation or, or discovery that at one point or another was accepted as true, later to be revealed as false. Uh, the Greeks had a substance, they believe, a certain smell that could um, transmit diseases, which we know is no longer the case. Descartes had a, a luminous um, ether, which was a, a product that he beloved was a substance in which light and gravity flowed, which we know through Einstein's theory of relativity not to be the case. And we could go on and on about substances and discoveries that were once accepted as truth that were later devalued and discarded. For some, faith is such a substance. For some, faith is something that while at some point may have had value, should should be discarded and cast aside. And lest we think that that is a modern phenomenon, know that it's always been that way. And we see it even at the very early days of Jesus' ministry. These scriptures, these verses that I read in the Gospel of John, they are one of the, I believe, pivotal points in the ministry of Jesus. Because up until this moment in his teaching, up until this experience in the Gospel of John, Jesus had been gathering, ga gaining a large following. Many people were flocking to hear Jesus and to see the things that he could do. 
They were impressed by his words and his wisdom, and they were probably even more impressed by his miracles. He'd fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. And to a people that were barely getting by, that was a very appealing miracle. I mean, it would be nice if you had an endless source of whatever your greatest need is, food, money, some sort of a material thing. They saw Jesus as kind of this um, modern-day ATM, if you will. That's impressive. They'd heard, if they hadn't seen miracles such as in the gospel in the sixth chapter, walking on water, or he'd cast out demons, or he'd healed the sick. So he's very appealing. He's becoming incredibly popular until these words of John chapter 6. Because Jesus begins to build on this image, this experience of being fed physically. And he begins to say to those who would gather, and when it says his disciples, it's, it's talking initially about a much larger group than just the 12. Those who had began to follow him and, and to listen to him and, and spend time with him. He says something very challenging to them. He says, basically, and allow me to paraphrase a little bit, that those who eat of my flesh, who drink of my blood, will experience life. Those who come to me will experience the presence and the blessings and the salvation of God. And what he begins to say and the teachings he begins to give, and, and he uses this image, he draws upon the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness when he says, they had manna from heaven and they still died. But those who eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, shall live forever. It's that gift of salvation and eternal life. But, but his teaching, his words, his invitation to the people does not sit well because it was like nothing they had ever heard before. And it's not because the words are offensive. They're not confused about what he means by drinking his blood and eating his flesh. They understand it the same way we do when we use those same words of, of communion. He knows he's talking metaphorically. They understand that. But what they understand is he's saying, I am the vehicle through which salvation comes. I am the way in which life and God's blessings are fully received. And that is uncomfortable for them. That unsettles them. In fact, in verse 60, they declare that this is hard teaching and they say these words, who can accept it? This is hard teachings, who can accept it? And the next verse says that they were grumbling. Jesus, the great teacher, the great preacher, the great miracle worker, is losing his audience. That's what's happening. He's losing his audience. Now, now I can stand up here as one who, who does this every week. And many of you, you know this, but if you teach, if you've ever stood in front of people and spoken um, or addressed a crowd, and that's something that you do regularly in your profession, in your calling, in your experience, then you know what I'm talking about. But there's nothing worse for a speaker or a preacher than to stand in front of a group of people and know he or she is losing the audience. To know that the words that are being spoken are not connecting, that everybody's checking out. 
And this is what that looks like. I don't have my cell phone, but, you know, you, you start to hold it down. I can tell because it's way down here and your head's down. But, you know, that, that's what it looks like. And that's a sick feeling. That, that, no, no, I'm not, but, I mean, it's just, it's awful when you know you're just, that the words that you've put together just are not connecting. That whatever it is that, that God's laid on my heart, I'm just not communicating it very well. Or, as I prefer to believe, the words are so deep that they're incapable. <laughs> just, just kidding. And one of the things, and, and I'll just confess, I mean, I've done one of the things you can do as a speaker or a preacher when that happens is you, you pull the cord. You know, you just let us pray. And, um, you know, you... <laughs> And I've had to do that. I mean, it has. It's, you just, you, do, you know, it's, you, you've, you've lost. And you pray, and I pray every week, Lord, in spite of my fallenness and my shortcomings, use me to, to connect. Jesus is losing his audience, not for the same reasons any of us ever do, but, but they are not liking what they hear. They're not impressed with these words. And there's another thing that you can do. See, if I was Jesus' advisor, if I was, and not that Jesus needs me to be his advisor, but if I was standing there with him, I might be tempted to say to Jesus, hey, you know what? This is too much. This is too fast. You're coming at him too hard. Soften this up a little bit. Give it to him in little bite sizes so they can receive it because they're checking out. So, so kind of back down and maybe do the next part of this in the next sermon, but don't lay it all on them right now. That, that would be my temptation because this stuff is hard, and it is. So my temptation would be, Jesus, take these hard things and make it easier. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes hard things and makes it harder. Hear what he says after he knows of their grumbling. Hear what he says after he knows they're having a hard time accepting it. He says, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Now, that might not seem instantly offensive to us, but what he says is, what if you see me go back to the right hand of God from where I came? What if you see me go back to the privileged place that I occupied before I stepped into your world? He is again reminding them of this special, unique relationship he has with God. He's reiterating this truth, which he goes on to say, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. He says again, I'm the way, as he would say later in the gospel, I am the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is declaring his unique relationship to God and the unique way in which faith is to be lived out for those who would follow him. Their faith is to be placed in him, their trust in him, their identity through him. And it does not sit well. And here's the result of Jesus' sermon. This is not a verse you will ever see at any church growth seminar. 
or any ministry seminar for that matter. Verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus lost his congregation in one sermon. I said to you, the, the worst thing for a speaker is to lose his or her audience. Actually, there's one, there's one thing worse. It's for none of them to want to come back the next week. I mean, we're human beings. I'm a human being. I have an ego and I have pride and I have to pray <laughs> over that a lot. But to, to bomb so bad that everyone says, I don't need to hear him again. I'll go somewhere else. That's what happens here. Not that Jesus bombed. Jesus was very intentional in what he was doing. But they all basically said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to move on. And in one instance, Jesus became like phlogiston, discredited substance, no longer necessary, of no value, and almost everybody walks away. Except for a handful. Jesus looks to Simon Peter and the disciples, now to the 12 who we identify with. And he says this, do you not want to leave too? Or he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, this is what I see as I'm imagining this scene and I'm imagining this, this area, maybe this countryside outside Capernaum, maybe similar to where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and all these people that have been following him and have been sticking with him and all of a sudden they turn and walk away and the countryside empties and here's Jesus left with just a few, a small group and he turns to Simon Peter who is often the spokesperson and says, do you want to cut bait and go? And Simon Peter says, no. We know that you have the words to eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. And that is a wonderful and a powerful declaration of faith. But here's what confuses me. Peter doesn't know anything. The disciples don't know. See, this is where context matters. If you have read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know how the story goes. You know that what we're going to learn about the disciples is they don't have a clue who Jesus is. They don't understand what he's teaching them. Over and over the scriptures say Jesus kind of has to explain it to them again because they don't get it. They don't follow. They don't comprehend. When they went to the tomb on Easter morning... After Jesus had told them repeatedly what was going to happen, they went thinking he was going to be dead and buried. They didn't get it. And they would not get it for a long time. It wouldn't be until after the resurrection and after these years with Jesus that it all starts to come together and they comprehend who Jesus was. So what I wonder is, what is it that they're doing that the others don't? Because it's not about them having certainty while the others who walked away from Jesus didn't have certainty. I think Peter would say, we're not 100% sure about Jesus. He says some really tough stuff. It's not about their certainty of who he is. It's about their conviction of who he is. They are convicted in their hearts that there is something unique. There is something different. There is something powerful about this Jesus. And they don't fully understand it all. It doesn't all make sense. But they make a decision, a choice to walk with Jesus. And there is the key. 
They make a choice to walk with Jesus while so many others made a choice to walk away. Brothers and sisters, the heart of faith is a choice that we make to an invitation Jesus gives us. Do you wish to walk with me? And too often what we want, what we desire, is we want that path and that road to be clear and and understandable and explainable and verifiable. And Jesus makes none of those promises. Jesus promises presence, promises to be with us. But, you know, there's that old saying, Jesus is the answer, and that's true. But, you know, Jesus also brings up a lot of questions, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties, because Jesus, he goes out of his way to make a very clear point. This is not the easy road. Jesus says to us, narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life. See, I wish that was the other way around. I wish Jesus would say, "Eh, the gate's really big and the road's really smooth. That's not what Jesus says. I should have written it. It would have been different. But Jesus didn't ask me. He says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the road. And we are invited to make a choice But that choice isn't always based on us having all the information we wish we had, on us knowing as much as we wish we knew. There's a point when we act in conviction and we begin a journey and a process. See, Peter made a choice, and he doesn't know. He will know, and he's going to learn a lot in that relationship with Jesus. That's the interesting thing. Peter says, we believe and know that you are the the eternal one of God. See, in that word know, that sounds like what we use. Well, to know is to have scientific, verifiable evidence. But that's not what that Greek word know means. It implies relationship. It implies the object that that there's someone who knows and there's an object of knowing, but they're connected. And that's what Jesus' invitation is all about. It's to a relationship in which we grow in a process of faith. But, But it starts with an invitation to a decision. And that's what trips so many up. See, we all have a choice to make. You know, the, the whole idea for this sermon began a few weeks ago when I was watching an interview with um, Richard Dawkins, which if you're familiar with that name is going to sound like an odd person to bring up in a sermon. But Richard Dawkins is a, he's not just an atheist, he's an anti-theist. He is very, very adamant and, and militant almost in his um, attack of faith and religion. And he puts all his faith and all his trust in scientific knowledge. And he uses that to try to discredit faith in those who would believe in God. And here's what was so interesting as I'm watching this interview. The more he talked, the more convinced and convicted in my faith I became. Because this is what I realized about Richard, who is a very smart man and has a lot of answers. But no matter how many answers he has, he finally had to get to a point. This was not an interview with a Christian person who was debating him. But he had to get to a point where he had to admit there's just a lot of things that are beyond human knowledge and understanding. Now, he's made a choice. His choice is science. His choice is the belief that all of that one day will be explained. Let me say, I'm not... Again, I don't believe there's a um, 
conflict between faith and science. I think those things go hand. I think God's given us a lot of knowledge and a lot of ability to understand. So, so don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not an either um, or. I'm a both and. But at the heart of our knowledge is a decision to put our trust in human intellect or to embrace a mystery of faith, which is that God gives life through the person of Jesus Christ. And that we receive life through an invitation to a relationship. We all make a choice. It's just a matter of, of what we choose. But Jesus doesn't seek to make that choice easy. He didn't promise any of those disciples it's going to get smooth for you from here on out. In fact, we know quite the opposite. What the invitation is that Jesus would say is, I'll be with you in that journey. Act upon the conviction of your heart. Act upon that burning that God has placed deep within when you're in the presence of Jesus. Friends, we, we're still given that invitation, but we choose. I, I find it interesting. Richard Dawkins is part of that anti-theist movement. Christopher Hutchins is another name that was part of that movement. He passed away a few years ago. Very adamant and, and, and ardent um, atheist. Christopher Hutchins has a little brother by the name of Peter. And he also grew up um, and was following a path of, of atheism until he started to feel a restlessness in his spirit, a restlessness in his heart. And he began a journey of faith. And that journey of faith would lead him to embrace Christ and embrace Christianity. And he wrote this in, in his book, um, My Journey of Faith. He, he, he writes this. He says, when I was making my gradual, hesitant way back to the altar rail, my brother Christopher's passion against God grew more violent and confident. As he became more certain about the non-existence of God, I have become more convinced that we cannot know such a thing in the way that we know anything else. And so, we must choose whether to believe or not. I think it is far better to believe. The invitation that Jesus gave to those disciples is the same he gives to us. And it's not an invitation to have all the answers crystal clear. It's not an invitation to, to know where the journey will lead and how the, all the variables will play out and to be able to scientifically calculate it or, or verify it the way we do anything else. It's an invitation to believe. It's an invitation to to a relationship. Jesus doesn't try to make the hard things easy. Many times he makes the hard things harder. But the hard things are also blessed by his presence. See, there are a lot of things we don't know, but this is what we do know. Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to all who believe, we are called children of God. That's the invitation. The question is, how do we respond? How do you respond? We're all in different places, different struggles, different experiences, different challenges. But we're all given the same invitation to come, to believe, and to know. I pray, brothers and sisters, that you receive the one who gives life, that you receive his invitation, and that you know him now and forever.
Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for an invitation and for grace. We admit that it's hard sometimes and it's full of uncertainty. But it's a journey that's blessed because you are on it and you are with us. Today we choose. I pray that for all of us here, within the hearing of my voice, we would choose life as we choose Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.